pray together. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. Speak your words today. Any of mine that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But take your word and plant it deep in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Back in the summer of 2017, while my wife and kids flew from Alabama to Phoenix, I drove our car that same distance along those 28 hours of highway. We were moving to an entirely new half of the country, not to mention a new city and everything else that goes along with that. And it was a surreal experience all around, especially for me, driving those hours by myself, especially as I neared the journey's end. Not long after I crossed into Arizona, across the border, I remember exiting the I-40 in Holbrook and then making my way south towards Phoenix across the high desert along these winding two-lane roads without a car in sight. Perhaps you know those roads. Uh, this was all territory that I had never seen before, nothing like it. And I just remember just feeling like a frontiersman. I was a stranger in this land, and this land was certainly a stranger to me, and what an adventure it was. After about 40 minutes off of the exit, while I was still just taking in the, the high desert landscape, I was absolutely stunned to enter pine forests. I, I couldn't believe it. I got another surprise when deep, dark rain clouds filled the sky and unleashed a torrential downpour such that it tested my wipers, which were not great at the time. I couldn't fathom that there were forests like that and downpours like that just a couple of hours outside of Phoenix. It's not what I expected. And what I realized is in that moment, I really do not know this place. I am an outsider. That's a strange feeling. Now, six years later, those same forests that I've just referenced and those rain-soaked lakes beyond Payson, which I didn't know existed before, are now some of my favorite places to go. The state has become my home. I'm not a native, like some of you, with all the rights and privileges. <laughs> but I'm not a stranger anymore, either. I'm not a stranger. Each year in the season of Lent, we give ourselves to a sermon series that will help guide us through the 40 days of time together. And our theme for this Lent is this, no longer strangers to the covenants. No longer strangers to the covenants. In year B, which is the second year of our three-year lectionary cycle, the Old Testament readings are all from about the covenants in the season of Lent. It begins today with the Noahic covenant from Genesis chapter 9, and over the next four Sundays we'll hear of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. Over the last six months, Father Carl and I have desired to draw greater attention to the way in which the Old Testament nourishes our faith in Christ. And throughout Lent, we want to continue this emphasis by walking through these passages together. I think this is particularly valuable for us to do because even as I lifted, listed off those five covenants, I'm cognizant of the fact that they might feel quite strange to you. If I asked you what each of those five covenants represent, you might struggle to explain them. And so, if you're feeling like a stranger to what these covenants mean, Lent is an opportunity to come closer to them. And coming closer 
is actually what the covenants are all about. Coming closer. The covenants represent God's initiatives towards us. And they therefore become our invitations to come closer to Him. Not long after the story of Scripture begins with God's glorious creation of all things, it becomes clear humanity has become estranged from God, removed from His presence, and no longer beneficiaries of all the blessings of Eden. Humanity has rejected Him. Humanity doesn't really know Him anymore. And humanity can't really be near Him, not as He is. At least, not until God does something to make Himself known and to allow us to draw near. In keeping with the Lenten practice that we began last year, this year we have a verse of Scripture that we are asking you to commit to memory. We're going to do this together as a congregation. Our verse this year comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Listen to it as I read it. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No longer strangers. You're going to see this verse on our Lenten materials. You might even hear it mentioned in your small groups or other gatherings. Let's give ourselves to these verses over the next five weeks. In order to understand what is taking place in our Old Testament reading for today, as well as to set up the rest of this series on covenants, we would do well to take a closer look at the nature and the purpose of biblical covenants in general. The first instance of covenant, that word being mentioned as a concept in the Bible, comes in Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, which is within this larger story of Noah and his family. God speaks to Noah in this passage and says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. This idea of covenant is first introduced by God. Now, by Moses' time, so many years after Noah, a covenant was a staple part of societal life. As Moses is authoring the book of Genesis and also authoring the other books of the Torah, this covenantal concept would have been more familiar to him and to his audience and to the surrounding nations than it was to Noah. In general society, covenants were binding agreements. They were these things that the contracts that tied you together to another person, or to another group, or some other entity. Sometimes these covenants were made between equals, between two equal parties, but often they were made between a superior and an inferior. The foremost example of this is what is called a suzerain-vassal treaty. In the ancient Near East, a suzerain was a kind of superior ruler, an overlord, as it were. And these overlords had all sorts of vassals underneath them. They were under the authority of the suzerain. And essentially, a suzerain and a vassal would make a covenant in which the suzerain promised blessings to the vassal if he would just be loyal to him. But if the vassal was disloyal, there was going to be curses to follow. They'd be at war. Now, while there are similarities between, between this kind of treaty and the biblical covenants, there are also some really important differences. 
The foremost difference is that the biblical covenants are not transactions like this. It's not about goods and services and loyalties. It's about relationship. Listen to how theologian Michael Lawrence puts it. He says, covenants for God are not merely contracts or promises. Rather, covenants are relationships under authority. Relationships under authority. What does that mean? God's covenants are deep and lasting relationships. They're meant to endure. And yet at the same time, it's abundantly clear which party within the covenant is in authority. It is the almighty and loving creator God who covenants with his creatures. So it's God's authority to initiate the covenant. It's God's authority to bless the relationship. And it's also God's authority to discipline those who are disloyal to the vows. This dynamic is is reflected in the repeated covenant refrain that makes an appearance often, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God, not your equal, and you will be my people. While we bear the image of God, nevertheless, we are not on God's level. And yet God loves us so much, he lifts us up to himself. With an understanding of this, we can now get at the purpose of covenants. I want to suggest there are three main things that God intends to accomplish through his covenanting actions. First of all, God's God's covenants reveal his character and his nature, meaning they tell us something about God. They tell us about his glory and his holiness. They tell us about his love and his faithfulness. They tell us about his grace and mercy, and they also tell us about his justice and about his power. And thus, they enable us to see God as he is. Covenants are a form of revelation. Second of all, God's covenants draw us close to him. As I've already said, covenants are ways in which God initiates with us even when we're ignorant about who he is. He woos us through his kindness even when we're hostile towards him. He loves us even when, frankly, we are unlovable. He draws us close. And thirdly, God's covenants offer a means of salvation and blessing. Sinful people do not deserve the covenantal initiation of a holy God. That's the teaching of Scripture. And yet, God uses His covenants to confer forgiveness and to give favor. They're instruments of shalom. That Greek word or that Hebrew word for peace, which is all encompassing about life in its wholeness and flourishing. Theologian Michael Williams describes God's covenanting actions like this. He says, The biblical story is that God is neither locked up in heaven far away, nor does he remain there. Instead, he is the ever-coming one, condescending to his creatures in order to forge relationships, to judge sin, to redeem his people, to shower them with benefits, and ultimately to bring them and his creation to the consummation of recreation. God's way in all of this, his way in the historical drama, is the way of covenant, end quote. Covenanting is simply what God does. It's his behavior. Not only do God's covenants in Scripture accomplish these purposes, they also have features for us who are Christians and are in a position to look back and to understand more fully what they were all about. For example, as we study God's words, covenant helps us to trace the story of redemption across the pages of Scripture. They're like mile markers in the journey where we can orient ourselves to the story. 
Additionally, I think it's suitable for us to contemplate the covenants within this season of Lent because the covenants always include, always, the testing of covenantal faithfulness, meaning each covenant contains a promise from the Lord which is going to be fulfilled at a future time. Therefore, baked into the covenant itself is the expectation that God's people will faithfully believe what is promised in order that they might experience the fulfillment when it comes. So, patiently believing in promises which are not yet fulfilled is a part of covenantal faithfulness. And that, for us, friends, can often feel like the wilderness. It feels like wandering, and it feels like waiting. Finally, in tracing the story of redemption, especially through the wilderness wandering and waiting, we are able to see how the covenants all culminate in one person, the person of Christ. This morning, we come to the first of five covenants located in our Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. I'm not going to read that passage again for us this morning, but I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles or the Bibles in the seatbacks so you can reference it as a way forward. I think that will be helpful for you. In Genesis chapter 9, what we find is after decades of ark building, after delivering Noah from global destruction, after the floodwaters have receded, And after Noah and his family and all the creatures have emerged from the ark, God finally establishes the covenant which he said he was going to establish way back in Genesis chapter 6, the one I referenced earlier. The first thing we should notice is that this covenant is much more broad than something just between God and Noah. The Lord says in verses 9 to 10, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and Every living creature. This covenant is referred to as the Noahic covenant, as in Noah, because the covenants are often designated by the name of the person who served as the representative of the rest. But what we see is that this covenant with and through Noah includes all the humans who would come after Noah and his children. So that's a lot of people. And it also includes all the creatures of the earth. That's a lot of species. It's a pretty comprehensive covenant. And that all-encompassing covenantal scope points to something unique about what God is doing with Noah and with his family. And this is it. It's a recapitulation of the creation story from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The two most prominent parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9 are this. First of all, water is a symbol of chaos in which God brings something new. He brings life out of it. The familiar verses of Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, the first two verses of Scripture read like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This primordial chaos. Due to the overwhelming sinfulness of humanity in the days after Adam and Eve, through the flood, God is reintroducing chaos into the creation. He's bringing water back, at least partially. Listen to how Genesis 7 echoes Genesis 1. It says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. God's Spirit hovered on the face of the waters. The ark floats on 
the face of the waters. It's the same phrase. We're meant to remember what God had done. The second major parallel between the creation story and the story of the flood is the mandate that God gives to the first humans afterwards. Speaking of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay. What kind of language do we find in Genesis chapter 9? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is recapitulating his creation here. He wants us to see the resemblance between his work in creation and his work through the flood. And yet, of course, there's a great deal of discontinuity between these things as well. The flood was something different. It brought about something new. It was a different covenant. So what is this different covenant with Noah all about? As we will be considering the covenants of Scripture, we will see that every covenant has a few basic components. There are participants, a promise, and a sign. The participants are, of course, the people or the beings who are covenanting together. The promise is the vow which is made. And the sign is the thing that certifies the covenant and symbolizes the promise that was made. And the interesting thing about the signs is they're not necessarily something newly created, but rather they're typically things that already exist, which God takes and consecrates, repurposes, in order to represent something new for his sacred people so that they would understand it from within the covenant. In these few verses from Genesis chapter 9, we can identify quite easily these three components of a covenant based upon what God explicitly says in these verses. Who are the participants? Well, again, we look at verses 9 and 10, which say, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, with your offspring after you, and with every living creature. So God, Noah, his family, and all their offspring, and every living creature. What then is the promise God is making with them? We find that in the next verse, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is vowing never to bring, <clears throat> never to bring supernatural chaos upon the whole creation again through a flood. We'll talk about more, more why that matters in just a moment, but what is the sign for this, again, we look at the next two verses, verses 12 and 13. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew text simply says the word bow, as in a weapon of warfare something used for hunting, something used to destroy and to kill. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible explains this. It says, And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, See, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. It's done. I'm not going to use it anymore. And yet, clearly, God's not speaking about a literal bow in the clouds, right? He's speaking of the rainbow one of the most beautiful and hopeful images that our sky displays for us. It's a symbol which is born when light is refracted into all the colors of God's creation. Now, I want to unpack these three components, the participants, the promise, and the sign, and the way I want to do that is within the framework of the purposes of God's covenants, which I established earlier. What does it reveal about God? How does it draw us close? 
How does it extend salvation and blessing? And perhaps most importantly, how does it culminate in one person? Four days ago, we heard this prayer in the Ash Wednesday liturgy. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made. You hate nothing that you have made. When people think about the narrative of Genesis 6 through 9, it can be easy for them to think of, the, of that awful catastrophe and then to believe that it is a sign of God's hatred. Now, the reality is, it is a sign of God's hatred. It is. The question is, what is the object of his hatred? What is it that God hates? It's not humanity. It's not the creature's. It's not anything that he's made. It's sin, it's death, and evil. It's the spoiling of what he's made. The experience of the flood and the subsequent covenant reveals to Noah and to all those who have followed him that God is holy and good. And because of that fact, not in spite of that fact, he is not going to tolerate forever the evil which has infiltrated his creation like an unwelcome guest. We are not to walk away from these chapters in Genesis understanding that God longs for humanity's destruction, that he is bloodthirsty and insatiably angry. Those things are true of pagan gods, false gods, who do not desire to be in relationship with humanity, who exist to be validated and placated by humanity. To the contrary, the true God longs for our life, longs for our love. He does not hate anything that he has made. In the passage, you should have noticed that the phrase, every living creature, is repeated a lot, like a lot. Commentator Bruce Waltke explains the significance of this. He says, the repetition of this phrase eight times in this scene affirms God's passionate concern for and his certain commitment to the preservation and the care of all the living species on the earth. God hates nothing he has made. What occurred through the flood is that God injected supernatural judgment into the natural world he made, wiping out all human and animal life, not so that he might put an end to life, but so that he might offer life a new beginning. God provided a new world, at least in part, which was ready to be inhabited by a new humanity, at least in part. And it's in part because, as we all know, God did not wipe out sin from the face of the earth. It's still around. And he did not remove it from our human souls. It's still around. And yet it's also obvious God was doing something different. It was a new era. God's covenant promise to Noah and to all flesh was that he would not unleash a wrathful flood upon the earth again. This is actually a declaration of God's love. Yet, yeah, if you're like me, and you really parse what God is saying here, sometimes I don't feel like this is a very powerful promise. Like if you just take water off the table as an option, I can still think of all sorts of ways in which God could wipe everything out. There's lots of ways, right? Maybe God is considering those options right now. <laughs> if you or I start thinking that way, we will miss the point. The point is, God's desire is that we would not be destroyed. That's what he wants. 
And moreover, his heart is that we would not even live in fear of it, that it wouldn't be something that even enters our mind. This is why the sign of this covenant is visible all the world over, so that all humanity will be able to see it and to know that it's true. The question is, do we? On that cross-country drive to Phoenix back in 2017, I had a lot of time by myself to think about what lay ahead of me. It was an adventure, as I've said, but I was grappling with a lot of internal fear. A lot of fear. This was a massive step of faith for me and my family. I was afraid about our new life. I was afraid to leave our relatives and our friends behind, really far behind. I was afraid to be a rector, to be in charge of a church, to be my own boss. I was afraid to live in the land of scorpions and scorching heat. It's terrifying. And perhaps you know what it's like to be afraid of the future, of the unknown. By the time I came to those pine forests and to that torrential summer downpour, neither of which I knew were possible in this state, I also didn't know that the greatest shock to my mind was still to come. You see, as I looked at the GPS, and I was only two and a half hours outside of Phoenix, I was just so confused, trying to figure out how this wet landscape was going to turn into the Sonoran Desert. And as I was considering that question, the road just disappeared from in front of me. It just dropped out of view. I was at the Mogollon Rim. And looking off that cliff for the very first time, what I saw was breathtaking. I saw green forested mountains cascading away from me, fading eventually to brown. I saw thunderclouds fill the sky with a tapestry of textures and light. And there, right there where the clouds broke open, a massive rainbow stretched from the east to the west as if it was there just for me. That moment was so incredibly instrumental for me and for my spirituality. I was so anxious about all the uncertainties of what God was calling me and us to do. And yet at that moment, God drenched my heart in hope. I had the abiding sense that no matter what Phoenix was, God was going to take care of us. And he has. This is the same promise that the rainbow offers to everyone, not just to me. When storm clouds fill the skies, the beautiful colors of the rainbow are a sign of God's unrelenting grace towards us. It was that to Noah. It has been that for generations of God's people. And it is that for you. It is that. At the same time, what is so poignant about the rainbow is that while its principal job is to preach to us about the grace of God, yet its shape also includes this parenthetical reminder of God's judgment. It is a bow after all. God's judgment has been stayed, but yet he remains a just God. So when we see the rainbow, we should also wonder, well, what is God going to do about the sin and the death and the evil that still exist in this post-flood world? And it's this question that leads us to the culmination. 
If sin, death, and evil were not destroyed by the waters of the flood, they must be done away with at some other time and in some other way. And we come back to the profound theology within the Jesus Storybook Bible. The story of Noah ends like this. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people any longer. It was pointing up, right into the heart of heaven. Meaning, upon whom would God's perfect wrath be meted out in order to deliver humanity and all of his creation? God himself. God himself. Beloved, when we see the rainbow, we are meant to see Christ. We are meant to picture his face. We are meant to image his cross. But the judgment of God was satisfied. And the grace of God was so generously supplied. I want to confess, this is really easy to miss. It is so easy to miss. It is so easy for us to take God's grace for granted whether it's in the rainbow or anywhere else. We might not even recognize it. It's so easy to be oblivious to truths which the skies have proclaimed for as long as there were skies. Through Christ, though, we are no longer strangers to the grace of God. When we look at the rainbow, we are able to see the God behind it. When we look at the rainbow we are able to see the love of God for all that he has made. When we look at the rainbow, we are able to see the judgment of God, which was mercifully stayed. When we look at the rainbow, we are able to see Christ. I know that in our surrounding world, the rainbow means many things, from sexual autonomy to pots of gold. But for God's covenant people, it means Christ. Christ. Christ, where the judgment of God and his grace meet in the beams of the cross. And so for us, beloved, this sign of the rainbow, whenever it's extended, in the midst of frightening circumstances, it is strength for us to trust God's good character and to trust his faithful promises. God has not left us without signs of his grace. We who have seen God's goodness can now see them for what they are. So in the season of Lent, beloved, you are invited to no longer be strangers to these things. To draw near to God that he might also draw closer to you. Amen.